blessed by it. Matthew chapter 8. Again, we're just continuing our travels through this gospel. We've concluded uh, with verse 17 last Sunday, meaning we will dive back into the text with verse 18. We read that when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now, within context, Jesus is in Capernaum, which is a port city. Uh, it's one of the many fishing villages there located on the western side, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so when Jesus issues this command to depart to the other side, he's giving instructions uh, to his disciples that they would board a boat, they would enter the water, and they'd make their way to the other side of this particular sea, the Sea of Galilee, which we'll talk, to, talk about in just a minute. But we're told that in the meantime, a certain scribe came and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. A very unique few verses of Scripture. Jesus interacting with two potential followers. We first are introduced to an unnamed scribe. For a little context, scribes. Scribes had a unique role within kind of the national identity, the political and religious sphere of Israel. You had two main parties. You had the Pharisees, which you can kind of think of as the traditionalists, the fundamentalists, the religious right. And then you had, on the other end of things, the Sadducees, who were more liberal in their thinking. And in regards to the way that they interpreted Scripture, they, they really excused away, wrote away uh, the miraculous. They didn't believe in the resurrection um, etc. Within kind of the middle of it all, uh, within the structure of how things operated, was this additional class known as the scribes. Uh, these were highly educated, often influential individuals. Scribes in a more modern context, you would think of as, as in some regards, lawyers, but maybe in a better interpretation, judges. Uh, their job was to understand the law of God uh, and to interpret it, to present it. Uh, now, how that was applied, they left that to the political sphere. Uh, their job was to give, kind of call balls and strikes, give the, the brass tacks of, well, this is what God said, and, and how that plays out, we'll let you figure it out. But they were the experts regarding the scriptures. Again, very educated. These men had memorized, committed to memory, the majority um, of what we consider to be the Old Testament. Uh, very smart intellectuals, um, but we, here we have a certain scribe, and, and he comes to Jesus <clears throat> with a term of endearment. He, he refers to Jesus as his teacher, and again, Jesus is the carpenter from Nazareth. You know, he's a relatively new commodity uh, in, in this point uh, within his ministry. His fame is, is spreading. His notoriety is working its way throughout the region. This scribe, hearing of Jesus, uh, understandably 
um, exposing himself to Jesus' ministry and specifically his teaching ministry. Something about Jesus and the way that he applied Scripture and viewed Scripture and handled Scripture. And remember, Jesus, while a miracle worker, was first and foremost a preacher. It was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath to open the scrolls and to expound upon God's Word. And this scribe, understandably being a part of the audience, now considers himself a pupil. He's a student. He refers to Jesus as his teacher, his rabbi. Again, an important term of endearment. And he declares to Jesus, he, he makes a very definitive statement. He says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you. I will follow you wherever you go. It's kind of ironic that this is not the last time that someone would, would make such an absolute statement. Jesus' core, the 12, the 18, would also make a similar declaration there in the upper room. Even if it requires death, we'll follow you wherever you go. And that didn't exactly play out, did it? This man's making a definitive statement, something that's absolute. There's a, a measure of confidence about himself, a measure of confidence about his resolve, his determination. Jesus, you're my teacher, and as a result, wherever you go, I will follow you. Now, Jesus has a very interesting response to the man. He said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We're not specifically told how this scribe responded. The implications of the text, especially in its brevity, is that the scribe probably didn't follow Jesus. That Jesus made a point, and as a result, the scribe rethought his position and went another way. We'll get to that in a minute. Matthew tells us about another disciple, again, at the same time, coming to Jesus. And he says, Lord, again, a, a wonderful declaration. Jesus being his Lord, more than a teacher. The Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, the promised Lord of lords. And again, with the implications of his desire to follow after Jesus, he, he makes a request, a consideration. You know, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first, let me go and bury my father. Seems like a very reasonable request. There's a lot of different ways that you can read into it. There are some scholars um, that expose that the man's father hadn't died, but he was referring to a family obligation. You know, my, my loyalty, my allegiance is... It's to my family. I have certain responsibilities as, as a son in the patriarchal system. I need to make sure that I'm, I'm available to take care of my father when he passes, to resolve the family affairs. I want to follow you, Jesus, but I just need you to give me a little bit of time is, is the essence of his request. The other way of reading it is that his father had actually just died which makes Jesus' response read a little, a little hard, doesn't it? Jesus said, follow me. Now, don't wait. I'm not going to concede. Follow me now. And regarding the dead, let the dead bury the dead. Now, I will admit to you that in both of these exchanges, we have a very 
complex issue. Uh, so complex that <laughs> I spent a lot of the week just chewing on these few verses, trying to understand the implications of what Jesus is saying. And then when I came to the conclusion that I understood what was happening, trying to wrap my brain around what's really happening. Because it runs really contrary to our modern idea of evangelism. I'm not going to name any specific evangelists, but we do live in a particular culture where appealing to the lost to follow Jesus, we sweeten the deal. And we do that from the pulpit. We lay out all of the benefits of following Jesus. It's the sales pitch. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is who Jesus is. And as a result, you should give your life and follow him. And we, and we up, up play the, the benefits, and, and we downplay the negatives. We want all to come and follow Jesus. We want all to enter into the relationship. Oftentimes in the sales pitch, though, we, we leave out important, more difficult components. Suffering, the difficult road. What's fascinating to me about what Jesus does here is in a lot of ways he discourages both of these men from following him. Like take the scribe. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, again, his favorite title in the Gospel of Matthew, of himself, a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, has nowhere to lay his head. Again, this scribe is a man of wealth. He's a man of, of understandable comfort. And Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Okay. Well, do you really understand what following me implies. Like, do you understand where this road will lead? Because I don't think you do. In fact, I'm just going to go right to the issue, letting you know, yeah, I don't think you should. You think you're ready, but you're really not. Foxes have holes in the natural order of things. They have a place to rest, and birds have nests. They have a natural place. But in regards to this earth, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man? Well, this is not my home. There is no home here. There is no place for me to rest my head. Now, we understand that Jesus, well, we have no record of him owning a home. Jesus, throughout his travels, had places to stay. He would bum the couch from friends. He had places to stay. But Jesus is speaking to something much deeper than that. He's like, you really haven't thought through where the road leads. This, this phrase, lay my head. It's an interesting phrase. It's, it's only used in one other instance in the gospel records. And it's a small detail you find in the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus has declared it is finished to telestai, we're told that he... He laid his head, and he gave up the ghost. It's the same phrase. It's the only other time it's used. The scribe comes, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus is like, ah, I don't think so. I think you think you, you will, but you really won't. And as a result, I don't think you should start. 
until you've really thought it through. Now, I know that that kind of attacks a little sensibility, doesn't it? Well, Jesus is telling someone not to follow him? Well, he does the same with this other disciple. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And however you want to read that, it doesn't really matter because Jesus is like, no, follow me. Now, the implications is that the man thought about it and was like, ah, I can't do that. And Jesus hit him right, right where it was needed, right? You think you'll follow me? If you're going to follow me, let's just do it now. Let the dead bury the dead. Count the cost. Follow me. I'll give you another example of a similar situation. Jesus was approached by a young, rich ruler, the rich young ruler. And he goes through this litany of things that made him qualified. And what does Jesus again do? Jesus says, you know what? I think you need to take all that wealth, sell it, follow me. Uh, and we're told that the man was sad and left. Again, we, we, we tout church success and conversion rates. The number of people converted. Therefore, we have to sweeten the deal to have more conversion rates, to have more baptisms, because somehow that, that equates to success. Jesus was never concerned with the quantity of his followers, but the quality. Have you counted the cost? Hey, following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus is difficult. Following Jesus leads to hardship. It sets you on the other side of the war. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against spirits and powers and principalities. Following Jesus is a declaration that this world is not your home. That your home is in heaven. Following Jesus is a declaration that your heart is not here, that your treasure doesn't exist here, but is in heaven. Following Jesus is the declaration that your perspective is heavenward. No matter what the, the journey might bring. This scribe, this disciple, apparently haven't really thought it through. And so Jesus goes right, right to it. I don't think you're ready. To the scribe, I don't think you've really thought it through. To the disciple, you're still hung up on, on temporary things. And again, that kind of strikes us as odd that Jesus would discourage someone from following him. And yet, that's what he's doing. And then immediately following this exchange, we're given a perfect illustration of some of the difficulties that do arise when it comes to following Jesus. Let's read the text. Again, within the context of verse 18, Jesus seeing the great multitudes, giving the command to depart to the other side. Verse 23, now when Jesus got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep, speaking of Jesus. And the disciples came to him, 
and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Again, there's an important context to the story that Jesus had given the command for them to get into the boat, and he had issued a promise that they would go to the other side. So they get in the boat. They set across the Sea of Galilee. And as Matthew tells us, suddenly a great tempest, a seismos in the Greek, a literal shaking of the waters occurred. This storm that arose was so intense that Matthew tells us that the boat was covered with waves. I don't know about you. That's my worst fear. Being on a body of water and a storm thinking that the boat's going to sink. It's why I don't do cruises. Just not a fan. Drowning and being burned alive. To me, two ways I don't want to go out. Jesus issues the command for them to get into the boat. They get into the boat, (coughs) and then this tempest arose. The Sea of Galilee, interesting, I noted last Sunday how, how small the body of water really is. Good size for a lake, very small for a sea. Seven by 14 miles, shaped like a harp. What makes the Sea of Galilee interesting is that it's, it's a lake that behaves like a sea. That's why they called it and referred to it like a sea. Interesting that the lowest body of water on earth is the Dead Sea. It's the lowest body of water on planet earth. The second lowest body of water on planet earth is the Sea of Galilee. A lot of people don't know that. It's situated roughly 630 feet below sea level. Not only does that present kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting dynamic regarding weather patterns, but the Sea of Galilee, in addition to being so low below sea level, is surrounded by incredible mountains, very tall mountains, that can range upwards of 10,000 feet. And this particular unique dynamic kind of sets the stage for very rapid and intense developing storms. To this day, incredible storms can arise within minutes there on the Sea of Galilee. High pressure, low pressure, cold air coming off the mountain range, mixing with the warm uh, air emanating off the water. This is not an abnormal thing. It It should be added that we have within this boat, um, first, a collection of men, all familiar with the Sea of Galilee. They're all from the region. Um, Of this group, you have at least what I could say to be four, maybe five, experienced fishermen. Peter and Andrew, James and John, um, at a minimum, those men made a living. They cut their teeth on this water. They had fishing businesses. I mean, these men, from the, from the age that they could walk, lived life on, on a boat, on this body of water. They were very much accustomed to the interesting storms that would stir up. They knew how to handle them. They knew how to navigate such waters. And yet there's something unique about this storm that freaks them all out. Again, as mentioned, 
waves coming up over the boat would be enough to freak me out. But understandably, they had dealt with such swells before. There was an opposition. There was something happening here. The wind and the waves and the rain beating down. The sky darkened, clouding their sense of of navigation. They don't know if they're going forwards, if they're going backwards, if they're going to the right, to the left, the east, to the west. They're disoriented. I mean, this is quite a storm. And in the midst of this storm, Jesus is sleeping. You know you have a problem. You know it's a storm. When fishermen have to resort to going to a carpenter for advice on how how to navigate things. Jesus is sound asleep, which, which in and of itself is kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? The humanity of Jesus. Spent a long day ministering. In fact, the context, we're told that when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. Verse 16, he cast out the spirits with a word, healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled. He spent all day, all night healing people. Yeah, I don't know what it's like to heal people. Never done that. I I wonder what type of energy such a ministry required. How exhausting it had to have been. I can tell you that preaching is enough to take it out of you. Even when you're fully healthy. What's spending all day and all night healing and ministering to people The emotional exhaustion, the spiritual exhaustion, the physical exhaustion. Jesus gets into this boat. He's like, you guys are fishermen. We're good. And he goes to the back and he lays down on a pillow and he goes to sleep. And you have the swells, the storm, the crackle of thunder, the bursts of lightning. Jesus is sawing logs through the whole thing. He's relaxed. He's at ease. He's being tossed and turned like a hacky sack. And he's sleeping. And these disciples, you know, I wonder as, as it kind of played out, you know, what you know of the disciples is that these were, these were proud men. They were proud men to a fault, but they were proud. You know, they liked to have a, a bit of, of self Resilience, self-reliance. You know, the storm kicks up. Oh, we got it. Like, at what point in the night did they finally concede, yeah, we're in trouble. So much trouble that we need to go wake up Jesus. No, give it another 30 minutes. Another 30 minutes. Like, how long did it take for them to finally reach the point of total brokenness That it's like, we are going to die and perish if Jesus doesn't intervene. Regardless of at what point they reached that moment, the moment did arise. And they go to Jesus. They came to him. They awoke him. And they prayed. And we have the request followed by the reason, Lord, save us. And then the reason is we are perishing. It's a, it's a good prayer, and it's the correct reason. 
They were perishing, therefore they needed saving. It's interesting, Jesus' sleep. Obviously, we understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus was born a man, lived as a man, had experiences, the experiences of man. He's sleeping. You know, this is the only time in the scriptures we have mention of Jesus sleeping. Not to say that Jesus didn't sleep every night. I believe he did. The body needs sleep. Jesus would always get as much sleep um, as his body needed and not much more. We're told that Jesus would stay up late ministering and he would arise early because it was quiet. He could spend time in prayer with his father, but he slept. But this is uniquely the only occasion where we're told Jesus was asleep. And, and when was Jesus asleep? He's asleep in the midst of a storm so intense the disciples are convinced that they're going to die, that they're not going to make it, that they're going to perish. Storms. You know, storms within the scriptures present for us a very apt analogy. In fact, so, so relevant that, that everyone understands them. Like we understand the analogy behind storms. Storms. You know, storms are the disruption of normal weather pattern. L the day is beautiful. The breeze gentle. Things are smooth. And then up ahead in the distance, you see clouds. And they begin to darken, right? And when a storm comes in, a storm disrupts the day. What you were experiencing, what you were enjoying. Storms interrupt normalcy. They're abnormal. The disruption of, of weather. Everyone understands storms. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's why the Bible relies on such basic analogies. If, if I were to, you know, if I were to say, how are you doing? It's a beautiful day. Well, what are you saying? You're saying all, all is good. Things are well. Hey, how are you doing? Man, I'm in the midst of a storm. We understand what you're saying, right? We understand the implications. Storms within Scripture, we find really two different kinds of disruption, two different kinds of storms. There are what, what I would call storms of correction or storms of disobedience. These are storms that arise because our normalcy is awry. We are rebelling against God. We are doing things that we shouldn't be doing. What is now normal <clears throat> is not consistent with what God has for us. A great example of this would be Jonah. God came to Jonah and said, I need you to go to the Assyrians, to Nineveh. You're my prophet. I have a message. And Jonah is so convinced that God just might save this wicked group of people that he's like, yeah, no, I'm out. And he does everything he can to go the opposite direction of what God had called him to do. He's in complete rebellion. He is fighting against the will of God for his life. He goes the opposite direction. 
He goes to the sea, goes to Joppa, boards a boat, going to sail to Tarshish. Again, the opposite direction. At that time, we're talking the opposite end of the world. And what happens? Well, God is not going to sit idly by and allow someone that he loves and cares for to just rebel. And so a storm arises on the sea. Jonah understands the storm to the point, you know, that the, the shipmen are throwing everything overboard to lighten the ship to better navigate the storm. And Jonah's like, yeah, guys, that's not going to work. Um, God's going to destroy us because of me. So if you want to survive, you just got to throw me off. To which they obliged. A storm. And Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. that Spits him up back on the shore. And God's like, are you really going to fight me? Storms of correction brought on by our disobedience. Have you ever had one of those? You were going the wrong direction and God allowed a storm not to destroy you but to try to change your direction. Now, I bring that up because that's not what this is, is it? In fact, you could make the argument that, that this is quite the opposite. Jesus has told them, right, get in the boat. And not only has he gave them the command to get in the boat, to depart to the other side, but that came with a promise, we'll get to the other side. Like, the, the reason that these men are in a storm can be directly attributed to Jesus and his command. They're being obedient. And yet, in their obedience, they find themselves in a dynamic, an incredible storm in which they, they believe they're going to perish. This is not a, a storm of correction brought on by their disobedience. Quite the contrary. This is a storm of obedience still brought on by God for a reason. Again, have you ever found yourself in such a storm? Life is going along merrily. Day in and day out. Things are good. Like for once, I'm not in rebellion. <laughs> I'm following the Lord and he's blessing. The harvest is plentiful. Life is fruitful. Things are good. And then out of nowhere, suddenly, a crisis arises. A storm stirs. And in a minute, you find yourself from this wonderful place to a situation where you're not sure you're going to make it. It's been said regarding storms that every single person is in one of three categories. You're either in, in nice weather approaching a storm, you're either in a storm, or you're exiting one. You fall into one of those three categories. There are some of you right now that are in a storm and for the first time, you're seeing the clouds break. And you're thinking to yourself, it's almost over. I'm almost through to the other side. 
And then there are others of you that are in the midst of the storm. You're in the middle of it, and you're disoriented. If you were to be honest this morning, you don't know up from down, right from left. You feel like you're getting beaten down. And no matter what you try, it fails. It feels as though you're swimming against the tide, rowing against the tide, and you don't know what to do. You don't think you, you're going to make it. There's some of you in that situation, and there are others where life is grand, and you don't know what's up ahead. What's interesting for those of us that are in the storm, sometimes, if, and again, if we're being honest, it can feel like Jesus is fast asleep. We pray, we cry out, but we're not sure if he's listening. And in fact, we're not even sure he's aware, as if what's going on in your life, he's oblivious to. Because clearly, if God knew, he would intervene, he would act, he would do something. But the storm continues. Jesus is asleep. These men, they come to Jesus and they wake him up. And they say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Verse 26. But he said to them, <laughs> Oh, Jesus. It cracks me up. I mean, really, in the moment, like, try to play this out. Lord, save us. These men are drenched from head to toe. They have been pulling sails, rowing, bailing. I mean, this has been quite an experience. They're, they're all a little shell-shocked. There's fright in their eyes. Their hair is, 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 is all over the place. I mean, they're drenched. They come to Jesus, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And Jesus says to them, the very first thing, he says, uh, why are you fearful? Um, the storm? The boat filling with water? Why are we fearful? Are you serious? Jesus. It kind of like, you're lacking a little self-awareness, Lord. Are you not aware of what's happening? I mean, you are awake, right? Can you see us? We all have our raincoats on. Literally, the pillow is soaking wet. Why are you fearful? Now, now obviously, what, what is Jesus... What is Jesus asking? What is he really getting at? Well, he's addressing the essence of their fear within the context of the promise that he's made. Again, th they're afraid. Why? Because they doubt they'll make it to the other side. But Jesus has begun the whole exercise by saying, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. So their fear is based in a fundamental questioning of A, the validity of God's word, and B, the heart of God behind his word. 
would God really command us to get into a boat, to travel to the other side, for us to die? Is this how the story ends? Jesus came to save the world and drowned in the Sea of Galilee. No. Jesus told them, we're going to go to the other side, get in the boat. He goes to sleep. They were going to get to the other side, but their fear. You see, they allowed their circumstances to shake their belief in God's word and whether or not God loved them, whether or not God cared for them. Again, have you ever been in a storm that causes you to doubt those two things? Because we have promises, don't we? God will work all things for the good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. God will work all things for the good. Well, God, I don't know. I don't know. And then he says to them, and, and I, again, I could be reading into this a bit. I think that there's a good pause between why are you fearful and then what comes next. And I, and I just imagine what, what Jesus' face looked like. Again, being one of these men. Oh, you, oh, you of little faith. And notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for not having faith. He says, oh, you of little faith. Which is, which is an interesting phrase because we're, we're told in another place, Jesus says that it's a little faith that can move a mountain, right? The issue isn't the amount of faith. The issue is where that faith is placed. You see, they were placing their faith and their own strength, their own ability. Well, they got stripped of that. Where should their faith have been? In Jesus, in his promise, in his word. In my Bible, this is where things get interesting because I have to turn a page. So here we go. Then he... I practiced turning a page more this week than I have in my life. Then he arose. He arose. Again, don't miss that. He arose, which means the whole exchange... Why are you fearful, O ye of Lee? He's still laying down. You know, he's still laid back on the pillow. Like, uh, hey guys, what's going on? Why are you afraid? So he gets up. And again, the boat is rocking back and forth. He arose. And he rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Man, to have, to have been on that boat, right? Why are you afraid? Um, storm. Oh, that thing? Give me a second. Gets up. Ah, stretches. Now shut up. Be quiet. And boom. Great calm. 
I, I don't know if you're aware, that's not how things normally work. You know, when a storm finally does exit the sea, the waves are still choppy. It takes several hours, you know, to get back to normal, for things to reside, to calm. And yet Jesus utters a word, and the winds and the sea ceased. And the Sea of Galilee, in an instant, was like clear glass. At that point, if you're one of the disciples, your freaking out seems a little silly, you know? Now, granted, they're still standing there drenched from head to toe, tired, puckered out. But then there was calm. And, and the point, the point of the storm is very simple. The lesson of the storm is very simple. You know, the thing about storms, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you aren't, the interesting thing about storms, life storms, whether they're correction or storms of obedience, either way, storms, the irony, everyone faces them. Everyone experiences them. Whether you're the saint or the sinner, storms come. They're unavoidable. Everyone experiences storms. The remedy to the storm, the ability to endure the storm, the ability to get to the other side of the storm it's about Jesus because he's faithful and he's able now that doesn't mean you won't be stretched it doesn't mean you won't be pushed it doesn't mean you you won't come to the end of yourself but the whole point is for you to come to Jesus even if it's saved me, I'm perishing. I can't do it. I'm at the end. Storms. We all face them. We all experience them. You know, people say, I've, and, and I've heard pastors within this passage, they'll say, the remedy to the storm is stay in the boat. Duh, I guess. I mean... I'm not sure you're wanting to go swimming. But you know, I don't, I don't think that that's true. And I'll give you a great example of this. A few months after this storm, an identical thing happens. Jesus tells the disciples, get in the boat, go to the other side. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, hey, wait a second. And then Jesus kind of, Ups the ante. He's like, go to the other side. I'll catch up with you. Uh, this seems like a trap. So they get in the boat to go to the other side without Jesus. Last time we were in the storm, at least Jesus was with us. He was napping, but he was with us. Spoke a word, great calm, good thing. Now we're in a boat, Jesus is not with us, and another storm arises. And we're told that Jesus was probably up on Mount Arbel, but he was watching them, and he was praying for them. 
And he sees them. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and another storm. And what does Jesus do? This time he's not asleep, is he? He's very much awake. And he told him he'd meet him to the other side. And so he starts walking across the sea. And we're told, there they are, you know, rowing and frantic and bucketing and getting the sails up, getting the sails down. They're frantic. And Jesus comes walking by as if he's going to pass them. Kind of like, hey guys, what's up? As he's walking. And then as the story unfolds, Peter, seeing Jesus walking across the water, he says, can I join you? Which is a bizarre reaction. I don't know the last time you walked on water. But Peter says, can I walk on water with you? Of course, Jesus is like, come on. Peter becomes the second person ever to walk on water. Doesn't last very long because we're told he gets distracted by the wind of the waves and he starts to sink. And he utters the same prayer they prayed here. Lord, save me. To which Jesus did. Why would Peter, and this is the point, He's in a storm. The wind is, is, is howling. The waves are crashing. The rain is pounding. They're perishing. Jesus is walking across the water. Peter's inclination in the midst of the storm is that, you know what? It's safer for me to be on the water with Jesus than in the boat. You see, Peter understood the storm. He understood the story. It's not about staying in the boat. If you're in the storm, it's about staying with Jesus. If he's in the boat, good place to be. If he's walking on the water, that's where you should be. The moral of the story really has nothing to do with the boat. It has everything to do with Jesus. And about you trusting him. Does he have your good in mind? And in closing, let me, let me bring this home personal. Again, recently I went through a storm. I'm in the middle of a storm. <clears throat> My life was great. It was wonderful. It was December. Hey, we had, we had had a real interesting 2020 you know, and then that carried over to 2021, and at the end of last year, man, it felt like the church had finally gotten itself back, felt like we were right on the, we were on the right track, my family was great, things were well, man, I was, normal was nice. We had gone to the ARC exhibit with the whole family. It was a wonderful time. I had gotten to see my, my, my grandmother, who's in her late 80s. It was just, it was sweet. Get home, I'm excited about Christmas Eve service. And then I get a fever. No big deal. And literally before I could ever get my sea legs, the storm had, had come. And I was down. And my storm was a little different than my wife's storm or my parents' storm or what my kids went through, but we were all in it. 
And there were times that none of us knew what up and down were or right or left. It was disorienting. God, do you love us? God, do you care for us? God, are you going to kill me? Am I going to survive? Am I going to make it to the other side? The answer to all of those questions is yes. Yes. Now here's what's difficult. The answer is yes, even if I died. <laughs> I'd have been home. My race would have been completed. I would have crossed the finish line. I would have been in glory. And you know what? As difficult as it is to say, if that had been God's will, because again, this was not a storm of disobedience. This was a storm of obedience. This was a storm that God was using to teach us, to mold us, to shape us, to stretch us, to grow us, to take little faith and make it great. And if I had died, you know what? It would have been God's perfect will for my wife. I've always told her she could do better. And you know what? As difficult as it is to say, it would have been God's perfect will for my children. Well, how could it be God's perfect will for your children for you to die? I don't know. But if I had died, it would have been. That that loss at their age, God would have used to teach them, to cause them to be more resilient on their heavenly father in the absence of an earthly one. You make it over to the other side. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is the ultimate promise. You will make it to the other side. And there's everything in this world to try to get your eyes off of it or to get you to doubt it or to have you question it. But don't. Do you trust Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Do you hold to his promises? And ultimately, do you believe he loves you? Following Jesus is not for everyone. In fact, we're told, Jesus will say, wide is the path to destruction. Narrow is the way to glory. Why? Because more people go to destruction. It needs a wider path than those who choose a different way to follow Jesus. So I'm here to tell you this morning, following Jesus isn't easy. And if you haven't counted the cost and really thought about it, don't do it. But I can tell you, you would much rather be with Jesus in a storm than otherwise. So Father, Lord, we do. We just set on that thought.